Hello and welcome back to The Conversation. I post episodes twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays on pretty much whatever I like. So welcome. A few weeks ago, I was minding my own business when someone I really respect started fanning out over American political commentator Candace Owens. She's been listening to Candace for two years and gave a passionate defense of her, saying that although Candace is harsh in her delivery, working with the wrong people, and has no regard for context, she has a point. The point being that Black Americans need to get angry at the claims that government programs are helping Black people, when actually they're just making them more dependent and helpless. I had almost the exact same discussion with a group of friends just a few days later, so it became clear to me that the universe was calling me to make an episode. Now, this is a difficult topic for me to research because as much as I love hearing different and even controversial viewpoints, now that I am learning how to spot liars and charlatans, I am very militant about protecting my peace. I don't want to waste my time and energy on people that deliberately sow hate and division under the guise of free speech and alternative viewpoints. A quote-unquote alternative viewpoint not too long ago was that black people should be enslaved and gay people should be killed. But anyway, I decided to do my best because I am passionate about releasing my people from the shackles of one Candace Amber Owens. I've had to break this down into three parts to make it more digestible. So get settled in with your favorite beverage because this is going to be a long one. Now, some background is necessary because I don't want people making assumptions about what I believe, but it's only fair that you know what my bias is, though it will probably be obvious anyway. In terms of political and economic ideology, I would describe myself as being slightly to the right of the center. But if you put a gun to my head, I am left of the center. In other words, it seems to me that capitalism with checks and balances to check huge inequalities seems to be the best system. Something like what Nordic, Scandic countries, as well as what Germany and New Zealand have a mostly free market, guaranteed affordable education, healthcare, food, and housing. The basics. If you give me a Donald Trump or a Boris Johnson, I will vote the other way every single time. These are not men that I would follow anywhere, much less vote into the highest office. So, to conclude, I am clearly not a socialist, a communist, or a Marxist. You should also know that although I read a lot of articles and listened to a lot of podcasts on the topic, I did not actually go back and listen to Candace herself in great detail. I have listened to her over the years and have no interest in hearing any more of her rhetoric. Lots of people told me to read Thomas Sowell as he is considered the grandfather or godfather of her ideology of black conservatism. So I spent more time doing that. So in part one, which I have called Sensei, we will look at the ideology of Thomas Sowell, Candace Owens' political guru. 
in part two, comrades, we'll look at the company that Candace keeps and see what that can tell us about her principles and who she really is. And finally, in part three, fallacies, I will attempt to address some of the many false narratives that Miss Candace employs almost nonstop in order to pander to her white supremacist handlers. So let's begin. According to Wikipedia, Thomas Sowell, born in 1930, is an American economist, social theorist, and senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Born in North Carolina, Sowell grew up in Harlem, New York. Now, due to financial issues and deteriorated home conditions, he dropped out of high school and later served in the Marine Corps during the Korean War. Upon returning to the U.S., Saul enrolled at Harvard University, graduating magna cum laude in 1958. He received a master's degree from Columbia in 1959 and earned his doctorate in economics from the University of Chicago in 1968. Saul has served on the faculties of several universities, including Cornell and the University of California, Los Angeles. Since 1980, he has worked at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where he served as the Rose and Milton Friedman Senior Fellow on Public Policy. He writes from a libertarian conservative perspective, has written more than 30 books, and his work has been widely anthologized. He is a National Humanities Medal recipient for Innovative Scholarship, which incorporated history, economics, and political science. So, I say all that to say that he is extremely accomplished. But he himself cautions against elevating academics and intellectuals and assuming that they know better than you what is best. I have not read any of his published books, but I have read and listened to dozens of hours of articles and podcasts in his own voice. And so I hope I will represent him fairly in this critique. As a preamble, I also want to say that from an ideological perspective, I really dislike the idea that anyone is seriously advocating for equality of outcome, that any sensible person is seriously expecting Jeff Bezos, John from Accounting, and Steve from Custodial Services to earn the same or nearly the same as a reward for their labor. It annoys me how often conservatives or libertarians try to make out that that's what the majority in the center or on the left are advocating. It's asinine and disingenuous, an excuse to do nothing, in my opinion, because of how, quote-unquote, unreasonable we are being. But back to Saul. He lays out his understanding of how people approach problem-solving in his Constrained versus Unconstrained View analysis, as explained in his book, A Conflict of Visions. A good illustration for this analysis is with the example of a race. Saul argues that the constrained vision advocates an equal starting point, and then what he calls process characteristics or checks and balances or limitations in order to manage trade-offs and receive a just result. Whereas the unconstrained vision advocates equal outcomes. In law, the constrained vision would support applying laws to the bare facts, whatever the outcome while the unconstrained vision would seek to tweak the process in order to avoid an unjust outcome. 
Another way to think of these two positions is that in the constrained vision, intention doesn't matter, only effects or outcomes. Whereas the opposite is true in the unconstrained vision. That is, intention matters a lot. Simplistically, the constrained vision represents Saul's own position and aligns with the libertarian view of minimum intervention by big government in solving the problem of inequality. As far as I can tell, the following is the primary argument that Saul makes with respect to economic inequality, discrimination, and disparities. He argues that existing disparities in income are not necessarily due to genetics, which is what a racist or misogynist would argue, that is, that black people or women are genetically less capable. And he also argues that disparities are also not due to discrimination, which is what a social justice advocate would argue. He disagrees with the notion put forward by social justice advocates that says, without discrimination on the basis of race, gender, etc., roughly equal outcomes would prevail. He provides a number of illustrations to support this point. So, for example, he argues that some groups just tend to do better than others despite discrimination, such as the Jews in Eastern Europe, Indians in East Africa, and the Chinese all over Southeast Asia. Saul also loves the example of families and the fact that the firstborn tends to do better than other siblings because of parental attention, as a counter to the idea that we should expect equal outcomes when all factors remain constant. He is adamant that interventions to correct disparities, which in his view arise not due to discrimination, only make things worse and therefore we shouldn't do it. So here he's talking about things like the welfare state, minimum wage legislation, and affirmative action. He argues that minimum wage legislation, which prices people out of jobs, the welfare state, and affirmative action led to an increase in poverty and violence, venereal disease, and unwanted pregnancy, etc. He often quotes the following statistics that as of 1960, two-thirds of black American children lived with both parents. This then steadily declined until only a third of them lived with their parents in 1995, and 85% of black children had no father present. This trend tended to be true across all groups and countries, but appeared to be steeper among African Americans. Saul pins this almost entirely on the welfare state and argues that, quote, it's because the welfare state makes it unnecessary for fathers to support their offspring, makes it counterproductive in many cases. A very poor man who might be able to support his family realizes his family would be better off without him. And irresponsible men and women pay no price for their irresponsibility, end quote. Now, I will address this at length in the section on fallacies, so let's put a pin in that for now. But I want to point out that he never seems to advance any alternative explanations for these problems, such as an unfair criminal justice system and the prison industrial complex that disproportionately targets black men. But as I say, we will come back to that in part three. Let's take a brief pause and continue after the break.
Welcome back. So, Saul makes it seem as if absentee fathers is a uniquely black problem. Meanwhile, the scholar who first spoke about this phenomenon of absentee fathers in black communities in 1965, an Irish-American man called Daniel Patrick Moynihan, himself had an absentee father and acknowledged that it had been a huge problem at the beginning of the 20th century in his community. So his own and many other Irish fathers abandoned their families, and I haven't read anywhere that it was because of the welfare state. So make it make sense. Saul goes on to point out that the black poverty rate declined from 87% in 1940 to just 47% in 1960 prior to the expansion of the welfare state and the so-called war on poverty in the 1960s, which began under the Lyndon B. Johnson government and points out that since then, there has been a far more moderate decline in poverty among African-Americans. So Saul disagrees with any actions by the state to correct perceived disparities. He disagrees with minimum wage legislation, affirmative action, and the welfare state. So what is his proposed solution? Go to school, get married, and work hard. That's it. That's literally it. Saul advocates relying on a moral society to fix the problem of economic inequality and disparities. Maintain the traditional two-parent family and everything will be hanky-dory. And he points to the fact that the poverty rate for black married couples has been in single digits since 1994 to support this position. So he argues that the real cause of disparities is the problem of single-parent families. And who makes up the vast majority of these single-parent families? Single mothers. So as far as I can tell, Saul seems to be making the argument that the real cause of disparities, especially in the African-American community, is who? Deadbeat fathers. Now, if you're happy with that explanation, I guess discuss among yourselves. <laughs> Personally, I think it is a little more complicated than that. For my part, I would like to ask the question, how do you explain the scores of people who have made a success of their lives and ended up on podiums crying their thanks to their mothers who successfully raised them despite their fathers being absent? And there are countless examples of this. Marcus Rashford, Daniel Kaluuya, Sean Combs, formerly known as PDD, and the artist formerly known as the artist formerly known as Puff Daddy. <laughs> Just kidding. But you've got Lil Wayne, Alicia Keys, Mariah Carey, Kanye West, Halle Berry, Kelly Rowland, LeBron James, Barack Obama, Jay-Z, Mary J. Blige, Martin Lawrence, Shaquille O'Neal, and many, many others. No one can dispute the difficulties involved in raising a child on your own, or indeed in not having a parent around. But how do you explain all the single mothers and fathers raising children successfully? 
of course all this is anecdotal and you might argue that this this may be in the minority but something about this argument simply rings false but kentaro you can't argue with data my friend data requires context and interpretation correlation does not mean causation perhaps criminality thrives where fathers are absent but it does not follow that the absence of fathers causes criminality this may be a good example of a logical fallacy called the third cause fallacy where a spurious relationship is confused for causation so for example saying that as ice cream sales increase the rate of drowning deaths increases sharply and concluding that therefore ice cream consumption causes drowning this example fails to recognize the importance of time of year and temperature to ice cream sales ice cream is sold during the hot summer months at a much greater rate than during colder times and it is during these hot summer months that people are more likely to engage in activities involving water such as swimming the increased drowning deaths are simply caused by more exposure to water-based activities not ice cream the stated conclusion is false So with respect to the increase in uptake by African Americans of welfare benefits coinciding with the increase in absentee fathers could there be another explanation for this for example higher rates of poverty among black families and higher rates of incarceration because they're targeted by over policing He keeps coming back to this idea that the greatest determining factor for outcomes is family background and he's even more precise and says that it is parental attention that makes all the difference. But in that same interview, he and the interviewer seem to agree that the benefits of family background come down to blind luck. But if you think about this even just a little you will see that poverty and for example the need to work several jobs to support your family are certainly going to have a huge impact on parental attention. So what now? I really hoped that he would say something about taxation. But he had to go all the way back to the 1920s where after so-called tax cuts for the rich the rich went from paying 30% of taxes to paying 65% of taxes so in other words they were paying a significantly higher proportion of taxes than before and poor people paid less than before which sounds impressive but i wonder why he didn't use a more recent example the 1920s <laughs> lmao he also provides some very disappointing answers to some basic questions in my opinion for example when discussing why people resent ceos making a lot of money when they don't resent celebrities he waffled on about how it's because corporations or ceos stand in the way of those who think they should decide what society as a whole is doing i suppose he means politicians or socialists i think so it's not because of all the times that these companies tanked the economy and then got bailed out at taxpayers expense most recently in the 2008 financial crisis when millions lost their homes life savings and pensions but the banks came out smelling like roses with their bailouts 
Is it not because they don't pay their fair share of taxes? Is it not because they employ exploitative practices and are destroying the planet but will never pay the price? This was a very disappointing analysis. Because how often do you hear people complaining about the CEOs of Apple, Microsoft, Walmart, Coca-Cola? They tend to complain about banks, pharmaceutical companies, social media and energy companies. Those that are seen as behaving unscrupulously and greedily despite their massive wealth. Come on, let's not be obtuse. Most people didn't care about Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Richard Branson until they claimed government relief while often failing to take care of their employees, tripled their wealth during a pandemic, and started trying to colonize space. Sowell thinks it's none of our business how much executives are making. <laughs> the ones that we give our labor, our lives, and our money? Lol. So many of his arguments are disappointingly simplistic in my opinion. For example, he claims that the Marxist idea that the rich are profiting by keeping workers poor through exploitation doesn't hold up because in a country with lots of billionaires, you should correspondingly have many poor people. But instead, there are more billionaires in America than Africa and the Middle East combined. He critiques the notion that the West became wealthy off of exploiting Africa and Asia and argues that the poorest places on the, in the world are the ones ignored by the West. I was surprised when I heard this. I paused the podcast and thought, I must have missed something. Because what is this very black and white analysis? So because some benefit has trickled down, that somehow makes unfair exploitation something to defend and applaud? It's not a zero-sum game. Just because you're exploiting me doesn't mean I get nothing. You could be giving me two when the value of my labor is five. I'll of course be better off than someone getting one, but that doesn't change the fact that you're exploiting me. And also, who's to say that America's main exploitation isn't happening offshore? This is all very disappointing logic. He insists that Western investment in poor countries is not exploitative and causing poverty and speaks of the Western investment in Japan, South Korea and Canada as if there is any real comparison. Investment in Africa right from colonial times was almost wholly exploitative from when they built the railways for the purpose of ferrying away resources to their own shores. It's the difference between a colony and a protectorate, between Congo and South Africa, where they want to exploit and where they want to live. He says because these companies tend to pay more than local opportunities, it doesn't matter that workers receive a fraction of the value that they produce. He says it's not fair, but what is the alternative? <laughs> the alternative is to pay a fairer and more proportionate wage that reflects their contribution to the value chain. It's not all or nothing. He also argues that slavery happened everywhere. We know that, but where else is there an unbroken line of the exorbitant wealth extracted from slavery other than in the West? Where? 
The thing I find about Sowell is that he does not dispute the existence and prevalence of racism. He speaks of the fact that in the 1920s, the prevailing belief about black intelligence was that their IQ ceiling was so low that there were movements to ensure that certain people simply did not reproduce. The eugenics movement, which was very big, with hundreds of eugenics courses in colleges across the country. So he accepts the existence and prevalence of racism, but somehow wants you to believe that it has no bearing on the structures and systems that these same racists built. He wants you to believe that sometime in the 1960s, a magical switch, off switch was flipped and racists in positions of power that decide on policies that affect everyday people forgot how to be racist. <laughs> or even if you do choose to believe that structural discrimination or systemic racism do still exist, that you should do nothing about it because you will probably make things worse. I have to say I am spectacularly unimpressed. As far as I can tell, in a scenario where, for example, children are starving or being exploited, Saul would not support government intervention because it might have unintended negative consequences and make things worse. He would advocate for something that one of his fanboys described as quote-unquote private action or the invisible hand, whatever that means. While at the same time, he believes that actually humans are innately creatures of self-interest, meaning they probably won't be asked to intervene unless it benefits them. So I guess it sucks to be you. <laughs> Some people say it is what it is. And others ask, can it be better? I know which one I want to be. Not because I think I am better than other people, but because I can't think of any other way to be. The one thing I appreciate about Thomas Sowell is his genuine desire to have civil discourse, to build understanding and not to assume evil motives from the person you disagree with. Let's see if we can extend this grace to Miss Owens in part two, Comrades, where we'll look at the company that Candace keeps and see what that can tell us about who she really is. Thanks for listening. Give us a like and subscribe to the channel if you enjoyed this episode and follow me on Twitter at SKentaro to continue the conversation. I hope you'll be back for the next one. Goodbye for now.